from WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Nina Totenberg, NPR's longtime legal affairs correspondent. Her new book, Dinners with Ruth, is about her long friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and about Totenberg's own life. And we talk with Cheryl Lee Ralph. She just won her first Emmy for her role as a no-nonsense kindergarten teacher in the ABC sitcom Abbott Elementary. Sidney Poitier gave Ralph her first screen role in his 1977 film, A Piece of the Action. At the age of 24, Ralph starred in the original Broadway production of Dreamgirls. But there were many difficult years when she was told there was nothing for her because she was black. And Kevin Whitehead reviews a new album by three notable veteran musicians combining free jazz and electric funk. Before Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a famous Supreme Court justice, and before Nina Totenberg was an award-winning NPR legal correspondent covering the Supreme Court, they became friends. They met in the early 70s when Totenberg interviewed Ginsburg for a story about a Supreme Court decision pertaining to women's rights. Ginsburg was still teaching at Rutgers University, and the ACLU had asked her to write the brief. The two women bonded over law, but Totenberg says, as friends, they tried to avoid subjects that crossed over into their professional relationship. They helped each other through crises in their lives, like the illnesses and deaths of Ginsburg's husband and Totenberg's first husband. One of the ways Totenberg helped Ginsburg after Ginsburg became a widow and during the COVID lockdown, when Ginsburg was in poor health, was to invite Ginsburg over for dinners. Nina Totenberg has written a book about their friendship called Dinners with Ruth. It's also a memoir about Totenberg's life and about her friendship with NPR's Cokie Roberts, who reported on Congress, and Linda Wertheimer, who covered politics. Those three women, along with Susan Stamberg, who co-anchored All Things Considered, became known as the founding mothers of NPR. Nina Totenberg, welcome back to Fresh Air. Congratulations on the book. I really enjoyed it. Thank you um, so much. I want to start with Roe. Um, you write about how Justice Ginsburg didn't think that Roe was the best case to guarantee a constitutional right to abortion. She didn't think basing Roe on the right to privacy would make for the sturdiest precedent. And she also wished that the change was more incremental. And she would have preferred a case that she had argued about a year before Roe. She wished that that had been the test case. What was that case? And explain why she thought it was a better test case. She represented a woman named Susan Strzok, who was a captain in the Air Force and who got pregnant. And under the rules in the military, as they then existed, she either had to have an abortion or be discharged. And she wanted to stay in the military, and she arranged to have the child adopted by people she knew. And Justice Ginsburg, this is sort of the flip side of the coin— Justice Ginsburg's view was that women have a right to their own personal autonomy, to what happens to their body, and that includes childbearing. And so she appealed the case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the court agreed to hear the case the same year as Roe. But the government, the Solicitor General, realized it was likely going to lose this case. And it caved. It changed the rule. And therefore, (laughs) there really was no case in controversy left, as they say, which was a, I wouldn't say broke her heart, but she thought it was a much better case and that it illustrated the dilemma of interfering with personal autonomy much better than Roe. 
Because in this case, she was defending a woman's right not to have an abortion. Not to, not to have <laughs> so an abortion. So exactly. how can anti-abortion people argue with that? So she was coming at it from both sides, but it would guarantee a woman's right to abortion by guaranteeing a woman's right not to have an abortion. So it was a kind of brilliant case in that respect. This was a very, what I call, Ruthian approach. She often represented people who illustrated the flip side, men who wanted the same rights that women did, economic rights that in and a law that discriminated in one case, for example, against a man who wanted a tax deduction because he took care of his elderly mother. And if he'd been a, um, a single woman, he would have been allowed the deduction, but because he was a man, he wasn't. So it's a very classic Ruthian, as I call it, approach. So if the Defense Department hadn't changed its policy on abortion, and if the government didn't therefore withdraw the case, do you think that the case that Ginsburg was arguing would have been the test case before the Supreme Court? Well, I think it would have been with Roe, but it would have forced the court to consider different approaches, different standards for a woman's right to choose. And whether that right was the woman's entirely, whether it was a woman in consultation with her doctor, um, it, it just, it would have been a very different case. And I think the court might have written something uh somewhat different than Roe. It might have bought her argument more than the um, very specific uh, trimester framework. It's hard to know what would have happened, but it certainly would have offered the court a different approach and a different way of thinking about a woman's right to determine whether or not she'll carry a pregnancy to term. You met her while you were reporting on a case that she'd written the brief for um, that determined that the 14th Amendment of Equal Protection under the law applied to women. And this was a law that was passed after the Civil War to ensure that formerly enslaved people and other black people in America had equal protection under the law. Um, were you surprised? I mean, you were surprised to see the 14th Amendment applied to women. Right. We're kind of used I, we, to that now. Why? What was so surprising about it? Well, you remember, I have to remember that I was a newbie. I didn't know anything. So I read quite literally, and I couldn't, I didn't understand exactly what you just said. How could this apply to women when women didn't even have the vote um, when the 14th Amendment was enacted as an amendment to the Constitution? So I called her up. And I put my question to her, and I got about an hour-long <laughs> lecture-slash-conversation in which I, you know, back and forth, where I, the bottom line was that, as she later put it in an interview with me, that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution guarantees equal protection of the law to all persons, and women are persons. Did that change your understanding of women's rights? Listen, this happened in 1971, and we didn't have much in the way of rights. We technically had a civil rights law that included women almost as a joke, so the, that the civil rights law that protects people in, 
in the workplace from discrimination applies to gender, but that was added as a poison pill by some members of the of the House or Senate, and it didn't work. So now then it was, but you know, people still operated in a way that today is almost unthinkable. And, you know, I was flatly told we don't hire women or we don't hire women for the night desk or we already have our woman. So it's hard to go back there and sort of remember what it was like, which is, frankly, quite irritating to women of my generation. We're very glad it isn't like that anymore, but it's not that long ago. And I want young women to understand that. And it's not like you thought that you could sue when you were declined a position. Or oh, you could sue. You could sue, but you'd probably never work again in the business. Right. And when, there you, were, when you were there sexually were couple- harassed <laughs> and fired after that, um, you, there was no – was there anyone to go to? No. No, you, there was no HR department with a bunch of rules about sexual harassment. There just was no place to go. You just sucked it up. You became friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg before she was a Supreme Court justice. Did the friendship change when she became a justice, and did it change even more when she became an icon at around age 80? I would say the t- the moment where my friendship with Justice Ginsburg changed was earlier. It's when she moved to Washington to serve on the D.C. Court of Appeals. Up until then, she was in New York, so I just didn't see her that often. But once she moved to Washington, we increasingly became personal friends. And after my late husband died, our husbands would cook together. You know, one of them would, Marty would bring dessert and one of his famous baguettes. Um, One of his favorites was lime souffle, but he made the best Marty was Ginsburg's husband. Yes, um, but he made the best chocolate cake I've ever eaten. (laughs) Um. People don't know, or at least I didn't know, how sick Gunsberg was beyond what she revealed, but she had a lot more medical problems than certainly I know about. Can you talk about the end of her life and how much pain she was in while sitting on the bench? Well, oddly enough, one of the things that was the most painful is that, I don't know when, a couple of years before she died, she got shingles. And in typical Ruth fashion, she just ignored it. She thought it was some little rash and she should just tough her way through it. And after about two weeks, she went to the doctor at the Capitol who said, you've got shingles and prescribed whatever you prescribe for shingles. But my husband was in a state about it because he worried that because it had gone on so long and because she was had other challenges, that she would never get rid of it entirely. And that's what happened. The blisters went away, but the pain did not. And my husband and her doctor tried everything they could think of to relieve the pain. And the only thing that worked was a lidocaine patch, which you can't have on more than 12 hours a day. So she had to pick which 12 hours. Did she want to sleep or did she want to be comfortable on the bench? And the answer was she wanted to sleep. My guest is NPR's legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg. Her new memoir, Dinners with Ruth, is about her long friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and about Totenberg's own life. 
We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and Kevin Whitehead will tell us about some musicians from the 70s that combined free jazz and electric funk and are at it again in a new album. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. Smartwool's new socks, apparel, and accessories use responsibly sourced merino wool to help you do more of what you love outside. No matter how you get out there, Smartwool has everything you need to get after it in all-day comfort. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smartwool's mailing list. Shop Smartwool's new arrivals and gear up to play longer. Smartwool. Go far. Feel good. Let's get back to my interview with Nina Totenberg, NPR's longtime legal affairs correspondent, who's covered the Supreme Court since 1969 and joined NPR in 1975. Her new book, Dinners with Ruth, is about her long friendship with the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The book is also a memoir about Nina Totenberg's life. Let's talk about your life, and I want to start with your father, Roman Totenberg. And there's a great story you tell in your book about how he learned to play violin. Oh, yeah. Um, so he's Polish, born in Poland, and th- we're talking here... Ah, 1918, right? And and, uh, his father went to Russia with the family for an engineering job there, and his mother also had a job, and somebody agreed to take his sister during the day, watch her, but, but whoever that was didn't like little boys, and the guy who lived downstairs said, I'll watch him. And he was the concertmaster of the Moscow Opera Orchestra. And because he didn't know what else to do with his five-year-old kid, he taught him to play the violin, five or six years old. And so very soon, he started taking my father with him when he had a, to, to go places. And he would play the more complicated parts, of, and my father would play the simpler parts. But he was a phenom. My father was a phenom. He was a child prodigy, and that was clear very quickly. And the place that he used to go to play all the time was um, these big communist meetings, um, Bolshevik meetings, because it was the time of the revolution. And he would be introduced and somebody would say, and now Comrade Totenberg (laughs) is going to play for you. And out would come this little seven or eight-year-old boy And the whole place, hundreds and hundreds of people would just break up laughing. But he was a fabulous musician even then. And he would be paid in bread and butter and sugar. And there was a famine at the time. And that was something nobody else could give the family. So in one interview that I quoted in in my book, I quoted him as saying, that's when I realized the true value of art, what it means to people. You didn't finish college, which really surprised me. You knew you wanted to be a journalist ever since you were 17 and got an internship with the Democratic Study Group on Capitol Hill. When you decided to drop out of college after three years, what did your parents have to say? Well, my mother actually encouraged me. I mean, I did fine. I did okay. But I wasn't you know, in I college, you did in college. Okay. I wasn't yeah. going to be magna summa. And my mother looked at my grades and she said, "You know, you don't have to stay there if you don't want to." And I thought, "Okay, I'm <laughs> leaving." <laughs> and she never took it back. She did not take it back. 
Did you do you ever feel like you were not hired because you didn't have a degree? No, actually. I was not hired because I was a woman. <laughs> right. A woman without a degree. Yeah, but if I'd had a doctorate, they wouldn't have hired me. If I'd had if if I'd been a summa in history, they wouldn't have hired me. Um, it was really hard to get a job. Early in your career, before joining NPR, when you were a print reporter, you tried to do a story for the paper you were working for in the Boston area about contraception, which was still officially illegal in Massachusetts. Describe what the story was that you wanted well, to report. I worked on the women's page, the women's page then of the well, the Record American in Boston, which was the tabloid. Uh, the women's page was not like anything you see in any newspaper today. It was basically rewrites of fashion press releases and recipes, and what and some and then there was another section that was weddings. But it was it was the most boring work imaginable, and I wanted to do other things at the paper. So I got the idea in my head that I needed to think up a really good story. And because I was in my early 20s, I knew that if I were at any of the flossy women's colleges in Boston, I could have gotten contraceptives. And so I called up every one of them that I could think of, you know, Radcliffe, Simmons, Wellesley, you name it. I think there were a half dozen of them. And in each one, I made an explicit appointment to get contraceptives, which it, selling or receive, selling contraceptives in the state of Massachusetts at the time was illegal. And so I wrote this all up as a proposal, and I brought it to my boss, a very lovely man named Eddie Holland. And I thought he was going to say, go to it, girl. And instead... He came to me and he asked me to come to, into his little cubicle and he said, Nina, <clears throat> I can't have you do this story. And I said, why? And he said, are you a virgin? And I said, yeah. And <laughs> he said, have you ever had an internal examination? And I said, no. And he said, I just, I cannot let you do this story. And there was, I was obvious there was no arguing with him. I don't know what the reason was. I don't know if he thought that if I went to, to an OBGYN to get contraceptives, I might lose my virginity. I don't know if he thought that this was just not suitable for the newspaper. I really don't know. But he said no. What an unusual kind of – what an uncomfortable kind of conversation to have with an editor asking you if you're a virgin or if you've ever had an internal gynecological exam? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I think back on it, I only remember being embarrassed by the question about, are you a virgin? Um, a little. But I, I thought he was so clearly embarrassed that I, I don't remember that I thought it was unsuitable for him to ask me these questions. I just thought he got to the wrong place when he said, I couldn't do the story. That's what really annoyed me. Well, he should have been embarrassed. It's like none of his business. It is none of his business, but it was, you know, it was a long time ago. You reprint a letter that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Marty, wrote when he knew mm -hmm. he was dying and he was, he was in a lot of pain. Um, and 
Would you mind reading an excerpt of that note for us? I shall think hard on my remaining health and life and whether, on balance, the time has come for me to tough it out or take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not, and I will not love you one jot less. Did Justice Ginsburg talk to you about her reaction to receiving that letter? Well, she told me about it. So she actually was the person. I would not have known it had she not told me about it. She thought it was a wonderful letter. And understanding her view and his. I did one interview where I asked her to read the letter. And she, I told her ahead of time I was going to do that. But she had forgotten. And it was an interview at the court but it wasn't in her chambers. And she forgot the letter, so she sent her judicial assistant out to get it. So she was a bit, um, as a Yiddish expression, fatutzed because she'd forgotten it, God forbid. And so she didn't, I think, do what she normally did, which was sort of put on her armor, and she read the letter, and she started to cry. And Ruth did not cry. She, you know, she choked it back, but it was extraordinary. How did he die? Did he end up uh, hastening his death? No. Um, They told him at Hopkins that there was nothing more they could do for him. And she called David and said, what do I do? And he said, bring him home. Let him die at home. And he did a few days later. And the next day she went to work at... um Yes. Assumed her position on the bench. Yes, and she had an opinion for the court to announce. And I think everybody was surprised to see her there, but she said, I did it because Marty would have wanted me to do it. Carry on. When she died, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, refused to let her lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Um, and, and he'd voted to confirm her as a Supreme Court justice. What was your reaction when he refused to let her lie in state there? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi authorized the Ruth's casket to lie in state in Statuary Hall instead, and that's the domain of the House of Representatives. So there still was this ceremony. It just was an indication to me of how far we've come in the partisanship of our country at the moment. I mean, McConnell didn't come to the ceremony. No top Republican from either house came. And I just thought it was what my mother would have said, bad manners. Well, Nina Totenberg, it's been great to talk with you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for this interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're always a wonderful and thoroughly prepared interviewer. Nina Totenberg is NPR's longtime legal affairs correspondent. Her new memoir is called Dinners with Ruth. The audiobook edition ends with this recording of Nina's father, violinist Roman Totenberg, performing Paganini's Caprice No. 24 in A minor. Thank you.
In the 1970s, influential musicians such as Ornette Coleman began combining free jazz and electric funk. Three notable vets of free funk bands periodically team up to get reacquainted. Vernon Reed, Jamaluddin Takuma, and Grant Calvin Weston call themselves free-form funky freaks. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead likes their attitude. album by the trio Freeform Funky Freaks is called Hymn of the Third Galaxy. The title shouts out to Chick Corea and Return to Forever's jazz rock classic Hymn of the Seventh Galaxy from 1973. That said, the Funky Freaks came up playing the post-Korea jazz rock style known as Free Funk, music with fewer complicated melodies and a little more earthy grooving. players helped shape the free funk style. Bass guitarist Jamaluddin Takuma played in Ornette Coleman's jittery electric band Primetime. Drummer Grant Calvin Weston backed spiky guitarist James Blood Omer. Vernon Reed played guitar in Ronald Shannon Jackson's great 80s unit Decoding Society. Reed also founded New York's premier black rock band Living Color and he still brings that in-your-face lead guitar energy. Freeform Funky Freaks. That's freaks with a Q, like in frequencies. As the name implies, they're heedless of category, blending jazz, funk, R&B, rock, and a little space music. Their tune, Norma Arm, grabs a catchy guitar lick from the New Orleans funk classic Sissy Strut by The Meters. ¶¶ 
Jamal Dean Takuma's bass bumps and Grant Calvin Weston's clean, big beat drumming do their own push-pull dance behind the guitarist. It makes for lively rhythmic crosstalk. Vernon Reed plays plenty of big arena guitar here. A blues reigns him in, for a minute anyway. With the blues, you want to put some feeling and meaning into it. Those old string bender licks sound more stressed than usual. few top jazz guitarists demonstrate their restraint and good taste on record. So it's bracing to hear Vernon Reed crank it up to 11 and wail so often on the album Hymn of the Third Galaxy. The road of excess doesn't always lead to the palace of wisdom, but it might pass through some colorful territory, out there beyond the boundary lines, where freeform funky freaks camp out. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film, and he writes for Point of Departure and The Audio Beat. He reviewed Hymn of the Third Galaxy by Freeform Funky Freaks. Coming up, we hear from Cheryl Lee Ralph. She just won an Emmy for her role in the ABC comedy series Abbott Elementary. This is Fresh Air Weekend. My next guest, Cheryl Lee Ralph, just won an Emmy for her role in the ABC comedy series Abbott Elementary. She also had one of the most talked-about acceptance speeches. She sang part of her message. Abbott Elementary creator and star Quinta Brunson also took home an Emmy for Best Comedy Writing. Abbott Elementary is about the teachers in an under-resourced majority black elementary school in Philadelphia. Quinta Brunson plays a new idealistic teacher who's still a little clueless. Ralph's character has been teaching for 30 years and is the kind of teacher who, with a glance, can get an unruly class to sit down or quietly line up single file. Here's how the character describes herself. I'm Barbara Howard, woman of God. I do my work, I go home. I get my nails done every week, and I love teaching. The second season of Abbott Elementary premieres September 21st on ABC and will begin streaming on Hulu the following day. Cheryl Lee Ralph got her first big break in the 1977 Sidney Poitier film, A Piece of the Action. An even bigger break came in 1981 when she starred in the hit Broadway musical Dreamgirls. She played Dina Jones, a singer who's part of a trio of black women called The Dreams. The musical was loosely based on the rise of the 60s girl groups like the Supremes and the Shirelles. After the success of Dreamgirls, Ralph moved to L.A., but found there were few roles available to black actors. But she kept pushing to find a place for herself. She won an Independent Spirit Award for her performance in Charles Burnett's 1990 film To Sleep With Anger. From 1996 to 2001, she played Brandy's stepmother in the popular sitcom Moesha. Here's another clip from Abbott Elementary. Quinta Brunson's character, Janine, the new teacher, needs a new rug for the classroom. One of her students peed on the old rug because the toilet was broken. There's no money, but she thinks the principal, Ava, will help her get a rug. Janine asks for advice from Shirley Ralph's character, Barbara Howard. 
I wanted to get your expert classy eye on my rug request email to Ava. Janine, we are not getting new rugs. We are not getting anything. Barbara, have some faith. Ava literally said she'll get us whatever we need. Janine, I have been working in the Philadelphia School District for 20 years, and Ava is just the latest in a long line of people who do absolutely nothing. Just do your job. This is me doing my job. I think the job means trying to make things better. And I think the job is working with what you've got so you don't get let down. Hmm. Shirley Ralph, welcome to Fresh Air. I love your character. She's strict, but all the kids respect her because they know she cares and that she's cared enough to stay and never give up on them and that they're safe in her classroom. She respects them. They respect her. Um... I feel like I know you. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I love the show. So thank you for having me as a guest. Did you draw from teachers or from other women that you knew to base your character on? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm surrounded by educators. You know, my dad, my Auntie Carolyn would be the closest one. You know, she was a blue ribbon educator, the kind that was the teacher turned principal in a very challenged urban school, uh, Washington, D.C., to be perfectly clear, and it was Bunker Hill, and she turned that school around by engaging the students, making them a part of what was happening within the walls of that school, and it just changed the whole trajectory for everybody while she was there. So she's definitely a part of Barbara Howard. What did you learn from her about how to gain the respect of students or of younger people. You know something? I think it's about letting them know that boundaries are there for a reason. And don't make me have to say this three times. I understand if I might have to say it twice, but do not let me have to say it three times. <laughs> Sometimes when you talk to them like that, they actually get it. In fact, on set, everybody is always amazed at why the students in my class are always the quietest, the best, and the most engaged. And I just talk to them that way, and we talk with each other, and my set is always ready to go. What was elementary school like for you? I think you went to a predominantly white private school for a while and then insisted on going to public school. So tell us about your um, two lives <laughs> as an elementary school student. Very different lives. I started out in public school in Connecticut, and you, you were talking about the 60s, and, you know, race is a big issue in the United States of America, and I'm an immigrant's child. So my mother, an immigrant from Jamaica, married to an American, is girding me up for success and what I might find in the classroom. And what I found in my kindergarten class was a beautiful teacher named Mrs. Spencer who did something very simple for a kindergarten class. She encouraged all of us to hold hands. And I remember being one of the tallest that I held her hand and she had such a soft hand. She had such a great voice. I cannot see her face, but I can see her blonde hair and what I associate with as the smell of Shalimar perfume. Oh, I remember Shalimar perfume. Yes. I Shalimar wore that for perfume. a while. I'd never wear perfume now, but I, you know, back in high school. <laughs> 
There you go, Shalimar perfume and one of those big sort of Donna Reed dresses that my mom wore. And it was the simple act during the 60s of seeing horrible things happen between black and white people where white people were very much the victim of simple acts of kindness or simple acts of a whistle or simple acts of a a wink. You know, black people were getting killed, hung, lynched. But I was in kindergarten holding my teacher's hand. And that made a huge impression on me. There's a scene in the final episode of the first season of Abbott Elementary where your character's on a class trip with your students and you want to show them your favorite animal in the zoo, a lizard who arrived at the zoo the same year you started teaching. (laughs) And you find out that the lizard isn't there, that the lizard has been retired and is now at an animal shelter or an animal retreat, I should say, because (laughs) the zoo became too much for him. And it makes you think, it makes your character think that maybe that's a message and it's time for you to retire from teaching. Now, that's Barbara Howard, the character, but you, Shirley Ralph, the real person, you, on the other hand, are having a great moment in your mid-60s. My understanding is you, you were considering giving up acting 15 years ago. Yeah, about 15 years ago, things weren't happening the way they, I thought they might, and I was just figuring, you know, hey... Um, may, I'm now married to, you know, Senator Vincent Hughes in Philadelphia. Maybe I'll move to Philly and do a small talk show or something, and that'll be that. And first of all, my husband looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, are you kidding me? First of all, everybody works in this family, and you've got a lot of work to do. And then I just happened to have a run-in with a casting director who was dropping her daughter off at the same school my daughter attended. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, actually, you know, I'm not doing too much. And she basically stopped in her tracks and said, that must be because you must not want to do too much or you've forgotten who you are. And I was like, wow, wow, what a perfect moment. And I really took that moment to re-examine my career, re-examine who was representing me, and get out there and get better representation, which I did with my current manager, Lisa Wright. And um, what she was able to, with the trajectory that she was able to put me on is exactly where I am, exactly where she told me I deserve to be. And it has been amazing. In the years before and after Dreamgirls, you couldn't get many roles because you're black and because some casting directors wouldn't cast a black woman and others thought you were too light or too dark for the role. And you have some pretty great stories about that. I'm going to ask you to tell one of them. And I know you've told it before, but it's too good not to tell (laughs) on our show. This is the Tom Cruise story. Oh, my goodness. I literally came out to California after doing Dream Girls. You know, I was returning to a city that I absolutely loved, and I was ready to work. I had a great pedigree, Tony nomination, great press. Everything was wonderful. And this big-time studio casting director looked at me and said, everybody knows you're a beautiful, talented black girl. But what do I do with a beautiful, talented black girl? Do I put you in a movie with Tom Cruise? Does he kiss you? Who goes to see that movie? And I remember at first being shocked 
that he was literally just saying this out loud to me, to my face. And I exited that meeting and I exhaled, standing on the steps of that amazing studio. And I rethought what he said to me. He said, everybody knows that I'm one, beautiful, two, talented, three, black girl, and everybody knows it. Right. So it was up to me to make sure that I was once again represented well so that I could move forward in an industry that was telling me from the very start, um, we're not looking for you. Um, we don't know what to do with you, but uh, you deserve something. We just don't have it for you. I like the way you kind of turned that around and said, like, well, everybody knows you're beautiful. Everybody knows you're talented. Is that what you tried to keep from what you were told? As opposed to there's no place for you? <laughs> yeah. It's not what I tried to keep. It's what I kept. Yeah. It's what I kept. It's what encouraged me to move forward. The fact that he said to me that everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. Your first big break was given to you by Sidney Poitier, who directed and starred with Bill Cosby in the film A Piece of the Action. I think this was 1977. Correct. And you were, you were cast as a, a teenager in juvie. Um, yes. So what did you learn working with Sidney Poitier as the star of the film and as the director of the film? Because he, he, was, he was in both roles. And he was producer of the film. I learned an awful lot. One, when you look at all the people that he cast in the show, these were all friends and associates of his that he chose to work with. You know, the people who co-produced with him, the people that acted in, you know, the main stars, James Earl Jones, Denise Nicholas, Bill Cosby. These were all people that knew each other, which makes for, at times, you know, a seamless production when you cast people that you know and some way and can work well with. You know, it can keep you on time, on task, and on budget. But as I left that set, he gave me this little, this makeup box that had everything in it for me to be able to, you know, look, continue to learn how to do my makeup and all the things that we might need as young actors of color because he said, they're not prepared for you. They're not ready for you. So you're going to have to be ready yourself. Hence me always saying I stay ready <laughs> because he really, really taught me that I had to stay ready because uh, they weren't going to do the job for me. Let's talk about dream girls. Um, did you love the girl groups when you were growing up? Groups like the Supremes, the Shirelles, the Chiffons? I mean, how could I not love a good girl group? And they just came, they just kept coming at me. I loved the Supremes. I loved the fifth dimension. I loved the three degrees. Oh my God, all different shades and beauties of black women just singing in a voice that I could represent and acknowledge. And I loved it. I loved their clothes. I loved their hair. I loved everything about them. How did hair and costumes help you get into character for Dreamgirls? 
Oh my goodness. First of all, it was Ted. I think it was Ted Azar. And Ted Azar introduced us to the most beautiful lace front wigs ever created, ever designed for the stage. And we had so many wig and costume changes, the bugle beads. The only disaster was if a string of bugle beads were to <laughs> fall off on stage. Oh my God. The crunching, the clashing that could be heard from <laughs> your shoes on those glass beads. I mean, it was something else. And having the stamina to wear and carry a dress that weighed upwards of 30 pounds. Oh, that much? Oh, my God. These were full glass beaded dresses. These were not the plastic beads of today. These were glass beads, hand-strung glass beads, and they were quite spectacular costumes. You're basically wearing a set of wine glasses. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're wearing a big old set of wine glasses, <laughs> and they're heavy once you string them all together. Well, let's hear the signature song of the girl group, The Dreams, and this is the song Dream Girls, and you are, of course, singing lead on this, along with Jennifer Holliday and Loretta Devine as part of the trio. Ladies and gentlemen, the Crystal Room is proud to present the club debut of America's new recording stars, The Dreams! Every man has his own special dream. And your dream's just about to come true Life's not as bad as it may seem If you open your eyes to what's in front of you When your dream girls, boys will make you happy Yeah, when your dream girls, boys will always care When your dream That's from the original cast recording of Dream Girls. This is actually from the 25th anniversary version of that. And so we heard from my guest, Shirley Ralph, singing lead with Jennifer Holliday and Loretta Devine. Um, do you ever listen to the cast recording? Do you ever go back and revisit that? Yeah, it's great to work out to. It's a great workout <laughs> soundtrack. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. Cheryl Lee Ralph co-stars in the ABC comedy series Abbott Elementary. She just won an Emmy for her performance. Season two of the series begins Wednesday on ABC and will be streaming on Hulu the following day. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorrock, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Rebel Donato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. Yeah.